This is a reading from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you this morning for your word. From these words from the Apostle John written in exile on a small island, Father, to encourage a church that was scared and hurting and longing for restoration. Father, we are thankful that we, too, are like that church. Father, we pray now that you would use these words to encourage us here in 2017 in Hinsdale, Illinois, this morning as they encouraged your church in the first century. In Christ's name, amen. Well, my wife and I have owned uh, seven, seven houses, seven houses in 26 years of marriage. And along the way, that means that both my wife and I have accumulated a particular skill set. I am able to do plumbing, kind of. I'm able to do electrical work, kind of. Uh, my wife took over the role about 15 years ago. She didn't like my painting capabilities, uh, mainly because it looked good to me, but not to her. So she is the painter extraordinaire at our house. Uh, we have pulled up carpet, we have replaced uh, the baseboards and the rounds, uh, I've done a little, little roof work over here and there, I replaced a hot water heater, I've uh, repaired a furnace, and so if you're like me and, and you own a house, 
um, you probably have acquired certain skill sets in fixing your house up because you know that no matter how wonderful a condition your house is in when you buy it, whether it's new or used, over time, things leak. You know, I would love, so I have this like, kind of ongoing, well, it's pretty much a hate-hate relationship at this point, with the, with the two toilets in my house, which no matter how often I replace that little flapper, it's like it waits a day, and then I'll be sitting down, and I can hear the tank starting to fill again. And I'm like, really? Like, only a day? So I like, don't know. I feel like I've exhausted all the possibilities of what to do to fix this. But it's an ongoing battle, really, isn't it? If you live in a house, there's always something to repair. There's always something to fix up. And even if you're in one of those places where you say, I'm going to embark on a complete remodel of a, of a bathroom or a kitchen or a bedroom, maybe you've added on to a house and you know what that's like. And most of you in this room probably don't do that work all yourselves. You probably hire that out somewhere. But even when you do that kind of remodel, you're not remodeling everything. Maybe, you know, maybe when you're living in a house, you're like, well, we did the kitchen and the bath, but we're going to leave this for later. It just, it never ends. You're just never done. And if you experience that like I do, it's also exhausting and tiring, and sometimes I don't even want to look in certain rooms in my house because I think, oh, the amount of work it's going to take to even begin this work. I don't even want to think about it. Mainly because I don't want to think about how much money it's going to cost, right? And so there's the whole prioritization of, of what we want to fix up in our houses based on how much they're going to cost us and whether or not we can afford it. Is it really even worth fixing up? Maybe you think of this room and you're like, ah, you know what? Shag carpet's going to come back around. If I just leave it in there long enough, it'll be totally in style. And so we'll just let it pass for now. So that's what owning a house is like. It's this constant need of restoration. But what I want us to do this morning is to think about not the restoration of our houses, I want to think about the restoration of everything, the restoration of the whole world, what it would be like for the whole world to be fixed up. And even better than that, what would it be like for you to be completely restored, completely restored in every way? That's what this passage is about. So as John writes this, he is in exile on the island of Patmos. He's late in life, and he's writing this letter, this revelation that he has seen, this kind of apocalyptic vision, which oftentimes if you're on TV late at night, you think that it's about Russia and, you know, Apache helicopters attacking Israel. And that's not what this passage is about. What this passage is about is encouraging a church that was being persecuted, that was feeling the pain of persecution deeply, and it was to offer them a picture of hope, of what it was that as the church they were waiting for and what they could come to expect in its fullness when Christ returned. This was encouraging. 
when we read the book of Revelation, we are supposed to be encouraged, not impressed by these, the dragon. You're supposed to be encouraged by what God is going to do and how this victory will look when it comes about. And so that's the, that's the picture that I want to paint for us this morning out of this passage of Revelation. It paints us a picture, John does, of, of what a complete restoration looks like. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is a picture that's being painted of a complete restoration. The complete restoration of creation. That everything in the world is being made new. Now, we could get into a theological discussion about the nature of that, and Jeff and I have done so many, many times. What does this restoration mean? Does this mean that everything on the earth, everything is completely obliterated and turned to ash, and everything is new? Or does it mean that somehow the earth that we're on now is somehow kind of radically transformed in some way? I'm going to imagine that the Willis Tower probably won't continue to exist. But we do know in some way that this restoration of all things, this complete restoration, is somehow a city. And there is still the material world. And that's what the author wants us to focus on. That all of creation, everything, all material things, are restored perfectly to the way that they're supposed to be everything. I can't even imagine what that looks like because I only experience this world. Imagine creation fully restored. This is the picture that John has of the new Jerusalem coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. Think about that. The beauty of this picture here. And our bodies, we know that we're going to have resurrection bodies. I don't know whether we're going to have two arms and two legs and a head. I like to imagine my restoration body is complete with abs after 50. That's the restoration body that I like to picture. I like to picture a restoration body where my knees are able to fully bend and stay bent and then unbend without any pain. And maybe as you picture what your restoration body is, you, you picture certain things that you've always been looking forward to. And I have no idea whether that's even close to what will happen. But I do know we're going to get restoration, restoration of our bodies, and it will be wonderful, and it will be complete. And that's not all. There will be this restoration of relationship. That's what this passage talks about when it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. In the garden, Adam and Eve were together with God. And even after they sinned, it says that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And we see this picture of grace even right then, even though God says, you have to go, you have to leave. I, we can't dwell together anymore because of sin has separated you from me. 
And then we have on Mount Sinai this instruction to God's people about building a tabernacle where the presence of the Lord will dwell in some way and will go before the people on the Exodus journey into the promised land and then they will build a temple and the presence of the Lord will dwell there. But then as their sin increases more and more and more, we get this vision in Ezekiel that as Jerusalem is falling, the presence of the Lord departs the temple. And even when the people of God rebuild the temple, the presence of the Lord never comes back. And then, of course, we have Christ. Christ who is God with us. And so we have this, once again, this dwelling of God with man, but not in its complete perfection. And then that comes to an end. And so all of this is about waiting for the restoration of God with man. That that's what a complete restoration looks like. That we are in the presence of God and that he dwells with us and our relationship with him is restored perfectly to the way that it's supposed to be. That our relationship with one another is that way. And it's a restoration of justice. Look at what it says in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur. Ooh, that's bad. Finally, justice. Finally, justice for those who require it. Finally, justice for those who have sinned against man, who have sinned against God. Finally, justice. This is the picture of a complete restoration of creation, of relationship, of justice. I'm going to ask you this morning, are you waiting for that? Is that what you're waiting for? The restoration of creation, the restoration of your body, the restoration of relationship with God, the restoration of justice. This is what we're waiting for. This is what the church is waiting for, the restoration that is complete, but not just complete. It gets better. This whole passage just gets better and better and better. It's not just a complete restoration that's being offered. It's a permanent restoration that's being offered. If you look at verse 4, he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. See, so it's not just a complete restoration. So you imagine that you've worked on your house, that you fixed it up, and it looks just the way you want it. But over time, it falls into disrepair again. If you've lived in your house long enough, maybe you've done two or three paint jobs in a room, two or three cycles of carpet repair. Maybe you've remodeled your kitchen a couple different times. Maybe you've had to replace your water heater a couple different times. Why is that? Because every restoration that we do now is temporary. But what this is a picture of is a permanent restoration. 
That's why he can use phrases like, there will be no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death. Imagine that world. Imagine the world where we don't experience suffering anymore, ever, none. No relationship strife ever with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents. Can you imagine that, kids? No more relationship strife with your parents. Will they let you take the car anytime you want? I don't know. It's the new heavens and the new earth. All things are possible. <laughs> but think about this. It, it, it's permanent. No more sorrow. No more suffering. No more death. No more injustice ever because there is no more sin. Because sin is no more. The effects of sin are completely done. That's why this expression, I am making all things new and it is finished, has so much meaning. So maybe we should ask ourselves, when does this take place? So when the person who's speaking here says, I am making all things new, when does that start? So I'm going to give you a $50 word that you can use as you'd like. It's called the prophetic present. So you should understand this as meaning that the person who's speaking is speaking in the present about the future, that this is what is going to happen. And sure, you could make an argument that this has kind of already begun for us, right? When Jesus Christ goes to the cross, he's, this work is beginning. But what this is really talking about is this finished and completed work. When he says, it is finished, it is a picture of everything being done. That when Christ returns again, everything is going to be fixed completely and permanently once and for all. That means that the work that we began in Iowa City when I was there to establish a temporary shelter that opened up every winter to take in homeless people so they wouldn't freeze to death on the streets, it was always good to, to see them check in, to see my friends, and dog, and cat, that was his, his girlfriend, and Nate, to see them show up and know they're going to be safe for another winter. And the winter goes away and there's no need for the temporary shelter anymore because people don't freeze to death in Iowa in June. But every year we would have to reopen it because every year... There were still homeless people, and every year they still needed to have access to that. The person who I think is waiting for this the most is this friend of mine, Christina Peer. So I grew up in this, well, I didn't grow up, but one of the first churches that I attended after I became a Christian was uh, this Bible church. And Christy looked just like Crystal Gale. So most of you who are young have no idea who that is, and you're just going to have to ask your parents. But Crystal Gale was this beautiful, beautiful kind of country crossover singer in the 70s with this beautiful long hair. And Christina Peer looked just like her. And she had a voice that was absolutely stunningly beautiful. And because she was aware that she was very, very pretty and very, very good at singing, when she sang, she always did it from the back of the church because she wanted people to focus not on her, but on Christ. And every time she would sing, I would think, oh man, that is the most beautiful voice ever. 
I can't imagine how, what it would be like to be able to sing like that. But Christy doesn't sing like that anymore. Because Christy started having problems with her voice at one point, and she went into the doctor, and they, this weird thing was happening. Scar tissue was somehow growing in her vocal cords. It was weird. So they had, did a surgery to remove it, and they said, oh, well, that's, we don't know what happened there, but we have done this surgery for you, and you should be fine. That was 90 surgeries ago because it just keeps growing back over and over and over again. For 15 years, she had a, a trach because the, the surgeries were happening so fast that they, were, they had to leave the trach in because eventually her throat would close up because of the scar tissue. About half of the surgeries that Christy has had over the course of her life have been done while she's been awake. Imagine that. I imagine that she reads a passage like this and says, I cannot wait for a complete and permanent restoration. Is that what we're waiting for? Is that what you're waiting for this morning? A complete and a permanent restoration. And so, of course, the question that gets begged here is, who could possibly guarantee a restoration like this? Who could be the person who does it? And that answer is given to us, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That Christ is saying, this I am the beginning and the end. I can do all things. This is the person who created the universe. That this is the person who can not only do the restoration, but guarantee that it takes, and that it takes permanently. So here's this last wonderful piece of good news. Not only is this restoration a complete restoration, not only is this restoration a permanent restoration, but if you've fixed up your houses, you know that restoration like this costs a lot of money. You're going to have to write a big check. And here comes the best news of all. It says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So your first glimpse into how this works is in this phrase, to the thirsty. So our need is exposed. That we're longing for some type of fulfillment. And that it's recognized. You are thirsty. You have a need. What would you pay to have a permanent and a complete restoration? What would that be worth to you? How much would you pay for that? So the beauty of the gospel is that this promise to you is done freely. That God, out of his care and love for you and his willingness to fulfill his promise to redeem you, offers up his son to you and extends his grace to you at no cost to you, but at great cost to him. This is what the gospel means. It means that there is no striving for this. 
So when we come to this phrase, to the one who conquers, I will give this inheritance, you might look at this and say, oh, no, wait a second. No, no, that's not at all what's being said here. What this is saying is I have to run the Christian race the right way, and if I run it the right way and do everything good, then I get it. Man, I hope I don't blow it. And that's, that's not what John is saying. Keep in mind the context of this. The context of this is being said to a people who are under persecution, who are having to endure suffering and potentially death. And what this says is, listen, you're going to have to go through suffering. I can't make the suffering go away for you. But here's what I can tell you, is that as you pass through this and as you endure this, here is what awaits you. This is what awaits you when you complete this suffering. If you want even more help, perhaps we would go to Romans, where it says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That the conquering that we need has already been done in Christ. That this is the gracious offer that is given to us. And that we're made sons. That's what it says. We'll be sons. We're adopted. And you know how adoption works, right? So this is another picture of grace. The way that adoption works is the effort of adoption is always on the person who wants to do the adopting. So kids, listen up. You ready? I got your attention for a moment. So how many of you kids have a puppy or want a puppy? Raise your hand. Yeah. Woo. That's right. Who doesn't want a puppy? Uh, I can't guarantee you're going to get one but I can tell you that most kids want one. And so if you go through this process of the puppy, you go to the puppy store and you walk by these, you know, rows of puppies. And I don't know what it is about going to the store, but is it just me or do these puppies look like they know what's going on? Like they're trying to figure out how can I look as cute and cuddly as possible so that someone will take me home. Now, this doesn't work at all for cats because I think cats don't care about anything. I think cats are, I think cats are like, yeah, whatever. But, but puppies are like, oh, look at me. I'm so cute and cuddly and I'm so playful. Look at me bat that little guy with my hands. You want to take me home. And then there's all those puppies that don't get picked. What's your criteria for not picking a puppy? Not what you want doesn't look like you want it to look, doesn't look like it'd be fun, isn't the right color, isn't the right size, isn't the right breed. Here's the great thing. God doesn't use any of those criteria when he goes about adopting us. What he does is he adopts us out of just complete love and grace, not about who we think we are, but who he knows that we are. He just says, I love you because I choose to love you. And I don't care if you got one paw missing. And I don't care if you, you know, you don't really look that cute. And your bark sounds weird. Like God says, I want you. I love you. That's the kind of grace that's poured out. That's what we're waiting for. A permanent, a complete, and a gracious restoration. Now, here's the thing. The Apostle John, here's the thing you got to know about him in this passage. He's a complete plagiarist. He has not had an original thought anywhere in this passage. Not a single one. 
he went somewhere and just said, you know what, I, don't, I got nothing else. I'm just going to write down some stuff that occurs to me that I have completely borrowed. For instance, when he says, then I saw the new heavens and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That sounds a lot like Isaiah 65, 17, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth for the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a great gladness. I rejoice in Jerusalem and will be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. When he says the sea is no more, he got that from Isaiah 51.10. that says it's you who dried up the sea because the sea back then was a place of fear. This is a thing that could cause people to die, and so Isaiah 51 is all about how the sea was able to be dried up so that people could pass through it. When he talks about, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, he's basically copying out of Exodus 29 and Ezekiel 37 where it says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be to them an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. And when he goes on to talk about there will be no tears or crying anymore, again, that's from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and Isaiah 65, 19. And that whole beginning and the end thing is from Isaiah 44, verse 6. And to the thirsty, he's recalling his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well who thought that nobody wanted her and she would be completely unwelcome. And he says, no, you are. And he quotes then when he says, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That's basically from Isaiah 55, 1, where it says, come and drink. The one who conquers, I will give this heritage, and he will be to me a son, is basically word for word, 2 Samuel 7, 14. And so why has John plagiarized basically this entire passage? Because all this is is a mashup of a whole bunch of Old Testament verses. Because there is a reason. Because John knows that the church has been waiting for the fulfillment of these promises since the beginning of time. They are waiting for all of this. They have heard these promises and they're saying, when is this going to happen? And John says, when Christ returns, all of this, everything you've been waiting for is finally going to happen. When Bartimaeus is by the side of the road and he says, Lord Jesus, please have mercy on me. And the crowd tells him to shut up and Jesus says, no, bring him to me. Because he kept yelling all the louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, what do you want? He says, I want to see. Jesus says, your faith has saved you. This is what Bartimaeus is waiting for. This is what all of us are waiting for. And this is the mission of the church. So this is how this connects to us now. Our mission as the church is to proclaim and offer as much of this as is possible right now. The restoration of all things, of people, of our created world, of our economies and our community. The church is supposed to be the agents by which God declares what this looks like, what the potential is. But at the same time we're doing that work, we have to be declaring our own deficiency. This is not as good as it can be. 
Whatever we're doing for you here in your life and in your community and in your workplace, this is incomplete. It's not permanent. There is something better that is available to you freely through Christ who promises to make all things new. This is the hope and the offer of the gospel that we are engaged in as the church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you. Father, we thank you for the fact that this promise is true, even though we can't even begin to comprehend what it means that there is a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adored for her husband. And we can't know what it's like for there to be no more crying and no more death. We can't even imagine that, Lord. Father, we thank you that these promises are true. And we look forward to a complete and a permanent and this gracious restoration that you have promised us. In Christ's name, amen. So now we are able knowing that we are promised and guaranteed a complete and a permanent and a gracious restoration to boldly confess our sins, knowing that Christ has taken care of all of this. And so this community confession of sin is a confession of sin that we do together because it reminds us of the fact that even though there are unique and particular sins that each one of us are waiting to have completely reconciled and restored there are those sins which are corporate in nature, which we can confess alongside each other. And we will do so now if you'll follow along in the bold. Our Father who is in heaven, you placed us in the world to be its salt. We are afraid of taking a stand, of being, of being stained by the world. We are fearful of how others will respond. So we have chosen to neglect our calling. Our Father who is in heaven, you have placed us in the world to be its light. But often we are afraid of the shadows, afraid of the poverty, and afraid of the unknown. We do not want to know other people's struggle, and so we have chosen to keep our light under a bushel. Our Father who is in heaven, you have placed us in the world to live in community. But often we do not want to make the sacrifices needed for community. We are often only willing to embrace community when it benefits us. Over time, we have come to desire our independence over the community and the church. Our Father who is in heaven, Hear our prayers. Hear the good news of the gospel from Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Thanks be to God.